Just two short months ago on Eye on the Triangle, we highlighted an organization called Sustainable Health Enterprises, and more specifically, their connection to NC State's own paper science department in the research of sanitary pads made from banana stems in Rwanda to benefit the women and girls of the communities in that country. Another campus-connected organization also seeks to solve the problem of expensive and inaccessible sanitary pads for girls and women in Africa. Zana Africa works to effectively distribute pads, but their work also entails much more. Christine Fulch, a professor of anthropology in Chicago and Zana Africa's chairwoman of the board of directors, explains how the organization came to be. I started with Zana Africa when we were at the very, very beginning. The way that the organization started is that a very good friend of mine from college, Megan White, moved to Kenya in 2001. She was working with street kids and working at a street kid's home and school. And she moved to Kenya to do small business development with them. While she was there raising money and thinking about starting bakeries and cell phone charging units, she did a cost per child analysis of all the children. And when she broke it out by males and females, she realized that for girl students, after food, the number one expense is sanitary pads. And so from this came the idea to ask the question, well, what's happening with girls when they have their periods? And what it turns out is that when girls in Kenya have their periods, they miss school because they don't have anything. So it turns out that a million girls in Kenya miss a week of school every month when they have their period because they don't have anything. And so in 2007, we started Zana Africa to solve that problem. While Zana Africa was inspired to help by the problem in Kenya, their aim is to help resolve this issue anywhere that it exists. At the very beginning, we were interested in solving the problem for girls that we knew, but it became clear very quickly that this is actually something systemic and not just something local. In any place where people are living on very limited budgets, something like a pad becomes prohibitively expensive. To give you an example, in Kenya, most people live on less than $2 a day. And this is actually the case for something like 2 billion people in the world. And Kenya doesn't have 2 billion people in the world. We're talking about across the developing world, people who are living on $2 a day can't access this good because the cheapest pad on the market is about seven to eight cents a pad. And at least in Nairobi, they're sold in 10 packs, which means they're 70 cents. And for people who are living on $2 a day, that $2 doesn't come in regular sums. It comes in lumps. So there will be days of absolutely nothing. Something like 70 cents is prohibitively expensive. It cuts into the food budget. This is a problem anywhere in Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, without a doubt. Though pad distribution would no doubt be helpful, Zana Africa realizes that more is needed to truly solve the problem. With a unique approach, Zana Africa is hopeful that they can spread health education everywhere they go. Since 2007, what we've been doing is running after-school clubs, and we have these school partnerships where what we do is give out pads and health education through the local schools because this is how you reach kids. And this is how you cross cultural boundaries. One of the things I work on is development strategies that work and don't work. One of the things that we find is that it's not enough to give people a product. There are cultural barriers, not just physical barriers. And so there are a couple of things that we do. One, which I think is super innovative, and I think it connects with young people, is that we are putting together a series of comics with health heroes. And these health heroes are designed comic characters that are actually totally connected to our Zana brand. And they hang out, they talk to each other. It's two sisters who live with their grandmother and their grandmother is this really feisty old lady who 
just is really knowledgeable. And one of the sisters is trying to go to college and has a really good friend who's in college. And we get to use these characters as ways for girls to relate to other women who look like them, who have Kenyan names, who dress like Kenyan women. One of our characters is Muslim. And so if you keep in mind the fact that in September this year, there was a terrorist attack at Westgate Mall in Nairobi, and it felt like there were tensions across some religious lines. What we're doing actually in the messaging and in the health stories that we tell is crossing religious and cultural boundaries. So one of the central ways we do health education is through using graphic means, through using health comics that are beautiful, full color, and that girls can share with each other. Spreading health education through the schools gives Zana Africa an important arm through which they can effect real change. We want to strengthen the education community and we want to affirm what's already happening on the ground. So we have these school partnerships where what we do is give out pads and health education through the local schools. And when you give out pads through schools, what you do is you create accountability. So we're able to have teachers actually check and see that the girls are in school. We get results on matriculation, so we actually get that data. We're also able to do things like make sure that girls get the supply that they need rather than hoarding. So it helps for some basic accountability, which I think is an issue often when we talk about development and charitable work. We're like, we're tossing out money, but is it actually making a difference on the ground? We go through the schools because it helps us see that there is a difference on the ground. The mentorship angle comes in that one of the things that Zana Africa does is we run after school clubs where we have trained field staff that are doing things like teaching girls about their bodies, teaching girls about the future, teaching girls how to use the Internet, teaching girls how to open princess savings accounts and learning how to manage money so that what's happening is that we're using the pad as a tool we're using it to open a door to many other things, including financial freedom, making choices about your own relationships and your body, learning about science, understanding these things, and also dreaming for the future and school. And they aren't stopping there. Distribution and health education are important for girls and women in these communities. But Zana Africa realizes that much more can be done to help. From the very beginning, we knew that this was not all that we wanted to do because we want to be sustainable. We want to be environmentally sustainable, and we want to be financially sustainable. We want to be green at the very core of what we do. So from the very beginning, we've also had this idea of what would it be like to actually manufacture pads ourselves locally in Kenya to bring jobs to Kenya, and then also to use the pads as a way to start businesses and to start an economic revolution in some ways. So we have been distributing existing products since 2007. We've been working on designing our own pad, thinking about what it would look like to build our own factory, manufacturing, etc. And in November 2013, we began testing our own pads on the market. So we have borrowed a facility and borrowed the machines and are actually testing our own design on them. It's been really exciting. We've worked on the branding and everything. With a plan and product in hand, Zana Africa is quickly making strides in helping women in Kenya. As you may have noticed, the organization tends to have grander goals and they don't plan on stopping in Kenya. The goal is to actually put me out of a job. It's not really a job since I'm a volunteer, but the idea is over the next 20 years to scale this up to a place where 
we are serving the needs of women in East Africa and girls through the schools. So that's what we really want to do. We want to not just have this be an endless pit of donation dollars, but something that becomes financially self-sustaining and then launches into the next level, which would be the girls being able to go to school fully because this is not a problem at all. Helping Zana Africa achieve their goals is the Delta Sigma Theta sorority right here at NC State. The sorority is involved thanks to inspiration from alumni member and International Awareness Committee member Sandra Johnson. I was on an international assignment in Nairobi, Kenya. And one day on my way to work, I heard about this issue on the radio, the issue of the lack of sanitary pads for the girls. So I thought about the fact that this is a serious problem and Sandra, you need to do something about it. So I thought about what some of the options for working to solve this issue. And I came back home for a vacation and I brought this to the Deltas, the sorority, because part of our focus is international awareness and involvement. So I came and I spoke to the president of our Raleigh alumni chapter, and we sort of brainstormed about how are we going to work to solve this problem? Should we buy the pads here and ship them? Should we just send funds? And Sandra, you're in Nairobi. You can then spend the money, buy the pads, and find a way to distribute it to the girls. And then one day as part of my day job, I learned about Zana Africa, and I met Megan White McCurrier, the CEO, And I had a discussion with her and said, I know this organization of women who would be more than happy, I'm sure, and willing to collaborate with Zana Africa to assist in raising funds and communicating to a broader audience this issue and the solution. So that was essentially the beginning of the partnership. And so since that time, we've had a number of events. We collaborated together on events from a Christmas breakfast in December of 2013. It was also a fundraiser. And we've had events in March this weekend, two weekends ago. So we've had a number of events. And we do plan to collaborate further on the regional level of the sorority and also on the national level. We actually, the chapter, are planning a trip to Nairobi early 2015. So that is a plan. And I would even go so far as to say, knowing the sorority as I do, that that will be the first of many trips. As we scale this up, there will be additional trips, I have no doubt, in the future. So this is something that we want to collaborate with Zana Africa on and have a long-term impact so that we will be collaborating with Zana Africa as part of that generation to wipe this issue off the map. And thanks to the work of Zana Africa and the help from the Deltas, several benefits can already be seen. I was able to visit one of the schools that we work with in October 2013. And I got to see an actual pad distribution. These were pads that we had just purchased or had been given to us, and we were handing them out along with underwear because the girls also don't have underwear. And the underwear is really cute. And so I was at a pad distribution where what the girls heard was an hour-long presentation about puberty and their bodies and themselves and emotional change. And it was so affirming. And it was so focused on the changes that are happening in your life are exciting, terrifying, but okay. And 
your goal right now is school and studying. And it was a presentation done by psychology students, so undergraduates who had a psychology club. And they were giving very nerdy answers about hormones. And the kids were taking notes and asking questions. This one woman raised her hand and was like, exactly where is progesterone produced in the body? And she was taking notes. Yes. Super curious. Eighth graders. So after this event, when we did the pad and the underwear distribution, these girls the look of relief on their faces as they got what they needed and the excitement as they were laughing, getting the stuff, it felt like Christmas. I spoke with the girl who raised her hand and asked the question about where progesterone is produced. And I was like, you know, what is it that you want to do when you grow up? And she said straight up, I want to be a scientist. No hesitation. And this was a school where there aren't classrooms large enough for all the eighth graders to sit together. So we were all sitting underneath trees on a hill outside of the school. So this isn't a school with incredible resources. And yet this girl felt empowered, knew her dreams, knew her vision. And that's just a small example of what I think the impact is on the ground wherever we have our interventions. Girls miss a week of school every month when they have their period. Girls don't spend time in class They are not able to pass the exams that are necessary to move to the next level. When we come into the schools, absenteeism basically drops to zero. All the girls pass from seventh to eighth grade. These are demonstrable changes. Girls say things like, I feel like someone loves me when they get their pads and they have ideas about their future. I think that these are the changes that we see. We see actual learning and we see young women making choices about their bodies and their futures. What this has a sort of radiating effect on is not just their lives and not just their families. This is totally connected to a decrease in domestic violence. This is actually connected to a decrease in the spread of HIV AIDS. Listeners who want to help forward this amazing cause can support the Deltas at RaleighAlumniDeltas.org. Zena Africa encourages listeners to share the message about their work across social media. And if you're looking to get involved, visit their website at ZANAA.org. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Savage. Hello. Testing. Okay. Perfect. Now, um, is it comfortable? Yeah. Does it make sense? Good. Okay. So we're just going to talk, like, how was your day, like, right now while I adjust the levels, and then we can get into the actual, like, nitty-gritty questions, the actual stuff that's going to go on but just talk so that okay normal levels what it's going to be like during the actual interview all right makes sense yeah okay so. so so how was your day no you talk I mean, oh i talk okay. right now yeah so my day has been relatively good i woke up at 10 o'clock i was supposed to have a class at 8 30 this will be edited right no, <laughs> no. So do you want to get, like, interviewee? Interviewee, yeah, let's get interviewee. Hello, all you wonderful WKNC listeners. My name is Mirtha Donisdorg, reporting for the first time, in case you didn't tell, for WKNC's Eye on the Triangle. I'm a new contributor, so bear with me. But what I hope to contribute is a candid shot of all those people around campus in the community doing amazing things that we just don't know about. So, I'm dipping my toes in the water first. Yeah, not really. Today, I'm delving straight into the world of metamathematics, logic, and neuroscience. 
a world that student Chris Becker knows well. So my name is Chris Becker. I'm a junior currently in philosophy and math with a minor in cognitive science and logic. I get asked a lot why philosophy and math. So I, I pursue philosophy because I, I like the kind of critical analysis of ideas, like the slower pace. It's not so much about the final outcome as it is about understanding why there is an outcome to begin with. And then math works in well with that with respect to studying processes and patterns, those types of things, symmetry. So it all works together. The title of your research paper is From Girdle to Informal Provability, The Problem of Certainty and the Peculiarity of Church's Thesis. The burning question on all of our minds. What does that mean? Yeah, so one of the problems that arose in at the turn of the century, not not the 21st, but the 20th, was a reconceptualization of logic. So for the longest time, we had Aristotle and Aristotelian logic in general, which used predicate letters, so like P and Q and these things, and it used formal notions, logical notions, like the arrow or the carrot, you know, for and, the wedge for or, and we were really just dealing with whole sentences, and we were trying to see I mean, we were trying to see things like, is if if P, then Q, and then I'm given P, and therefore Q, right? So it's very kind of broad. But then we had Frege, who, Gottlob Frege, who in the late 19th century, he came along, and he was trying to figure out how we can make logic more precise. Because, you know, a lot of, really everything we do is based on math, and then if we... If we ask what is math based on, it comes down to logic. So he was really interested in that kind of structuralist foundational viewpoint and in making it more precise and therefore more, more powerful. He allowed us to say that there exists certain things and he allowed us to say that this applies to everything or this applies to only some things. And that was groundbreaking in logic because before, you know, if it's... Uh, what's a good example? Um... If it is raining, then it is wet. It's raining, therefore it's wet. It's a very specific example, right? It doesn't really generalize well, but Frege was looking for this ability to generalize. So he allowed us to do that, and then that led the way to kind of discovering these these issues that didn't arise before because we didn't know there were issues because we didn't have the, the necessary tools to, to find them. But one of those issues was raised by Gödel who was a mathematician and logician in the 1930s, he told us that if you have a system, a formal system, Gödel said if we have a formal system like that, like arithmetic, that if I have every theorem that is possible in that, so if I know every possible true statement, then I'm going to have a contradiction in there somewhere. That sounds really confusing. Could you give an example? For the sake of an example, that could be as simple as 2 plus 2 equals 4 and 2, 2 plus 2 equals 5, which obviously doesn't work in math. You know, we can't have contradiction. But then he also showed, which is what makes his results so powerful and the problem so pertinent, he showed that if we don't have any contradictions in our formal system, such as arithmetic currently, then we haven't discovered every true statement there is. It's a problem, I mean, to the extent that we were bounded 
by our knowledge, right? Where we, how do I, how do I actually say this? I mean, it's, it's certainly not cohesive or coherent, but that is part of the kind of out there problem that it, that it raises is that for one of the first times we're looking at math in a way that we've never looked at it before, whereas previously it was very straightforward, it was very applied, and we understood a lot of it. This is one of those kind of counterintuitive notions that really blew people's minds, and it, it upset a lot of the mathematics that was happening. But it also motivated a brand new way to think about not just math, but the world in general. This seems so out there. Why did they believe Gödel? Why did they? Because he provided proof, and he provided it very succinctly and very clearly. So in the matter of three pages, he was able to prove that the results that I just talked about, the incompleteness and inconsistency. So those things weren't necessarily devastating, but like I said, they, they really motivated a different way to look at math and a different way to view the world. So one, one really analogous example is not theory. So if you think about when you tie your shoe, right, that's a certain kind of knot. And if you want to mathematically analyze how many different ways you can tie that knot or where you can start, how long the string needs to be, et cetera, or if it's invertible, whatever, how would you do that? Now, the, the way that we've gone about it is you create a mathematical model. So you try and think about what's the most essential thing that makes something a knot. So things like, well, it crosses over itself. Uh, it doesn't cut itself in half. It requires this certain length. Those things then allow, allow us to really formalize it in math. And we say, okay, our model of a knot in math accurately captures this physical object called a knot. And then we start working in our math and it allows us to go through a lot of generalizations and say, okay, so no longer do I just need to look at, you know, go through every single experiment possible to tie my knot in this way or this way. Now I can just abstract and say this. We're taking a physical object or a physical notion of a knot, and we are now making it mathematically precise in order to do mathematical theorems and to deduce them uh, and say true things about knots, right? Mm -hmm. If we view the mind that way, then artificial intelligence seems like it's perfect, perfectly viable. It's just a matter of when we can actually figure out how to model every function that goes on in our mind, every process, and then we just translate that into a machine. However, it also challenges people if they don't like that outcome, if they don't think the artificial intelligence can you know, exactly replicate who we are as people. Then it, it, lends, it begs the question of, well, what is it, what parts of us in our mind differentiate us from machines? Are there processes or functions that happen that aren't able to be carried out by a machine? Some of these, you know, just off the top of our heads could be things like understanding or self-consciousness. Are those as simple as just logic circuitry, you know? That is immensely interesting. How did you get started with that? You know, it's, it's not something that I, I sought out or that at the age of 14, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> so for the longest time, I, I didn't really know how my majors and my minors connected with each other. I just found immense interest in all of them. So I was like, okay, let's become as diverse as, as possible. And, you know, don't listen to the parents, don't listen to the society, you know, and it really wasn't until recently that I got into 
the higher level courses, was able to start making some abstract connections between these really, really fundamental concepts that underlie a lot of how we view the world and culture and our knowledge. So it, it wasn't until I started studying analysis in math and more getting into the abstract theory, really focusing on proofs, and then supplementing that with a more rigorous understanding of what philosophy can do aside from, you know, just having hour-long debates about what's the meaning of life. You know, it, it was, wasn't until those things supplemented each other, and then I really started getting into cognitive science, where, you know, we started talking about this computational model of the mind, connectionist models, different theories that people have been advocating, that I was able to kind of make those connections. So I think, if anything, it was a product of the kind of interdisciplinary approach that happened, to be honest, by accident. I'm glad it happened, and it's it's been a very wonderful experience seeing how you know my passions can play a pivotal role with each other. For I on the Triangle, this is Mirtha Donnerstorg. Terrence Anthony Park. How are you? Fine, thank you. Let's get started with the questions. What exactly does a aviation ordnance man do? An aviation ordnance man is responsible for assembling, handling, uploading, and downloading ordnance such as uh, bombs, missiles, rockets, things like that. Pretty much uh, anything that's explosive. Cool. Does that involve... Um just things on your ship or will it involve things on other ships as well? Uh, aviation Nordicemen, they work on ships and they also work on land and squadrons. Why did you decide to join the Navy? I decided to join the Navy for a couple of reasons. First, I didn't have enough money for college and secondly, I wanted the opportunity to travel. In the email that you sent me, you mentioned the acronym RCOH. Uh, RCOH, that's Refueling Complex Overhaul. Basically, the aircraft carrier that I work on, the USS Abraham Lincoln, it's at its midlife point. They designed this aircraft carrier to operate for about 50 years. It's at its halfway point right now, and when a carrier reaches its halfway point, basically it goes in for a complete overhaul, rebuilding from the inside out. And part of that overhaul is the actual uh, reactor that fuels the ship. They have to refuel the reactor. What kind of things do you have to go through in order to rebuild the ship from the inside out? Right now we're in a shipyard, and part of it is replacing a lot of the pipes, a lot of the ventilation systems, a lot of the walls, uh, a lot of the living spaces, like the beds we sleep on. It would pretty much, uh, I can equivalent rebuilding your house from the inside out, replacing everything, making it brand new again. Now, would you ever do that while you're at sea? Well, it's impossible to do it at sea because of the equipment required. Are there a lot of safety concerns with that? Part of the overhaul is actually the bottom of the ship, the outside skin of the ship, so it also involves painting it, which we couldn't do out to sea, of course. So. 
You mentioned um, working with a birthing team. What exactly is that? The birthings are the living spaces that the sailors sleep in. And right now, I am the production chief of a birthing team. Right now, we have, in our responsibility, we have 39 birthings that we're going to completely overhaul. That means take out all of the sleeping surfaces in it, strip down the paint off the walls, strip down the, the floor. We'll basically repaint the walls, redo the floor, and install new sleeping spaces and new lockers in the birthing. Being in the Navy, I'm sure you have some hilarious stories with trying to, you know, do your job right now with with completely, you know, taking out the stuff that's in the ship and rebuilding it. Do you have any funny stories that you want to share? I'd say the most interesting are some of the things we we find when tearing apart the birthings. You know, we found underneath some of the uh, beds, you know, we found money, we found jewelry, we found music videos, a lot of kinds of things, you know, just stuff that you wouldn't expect. We've even found uh, iPods and MP3 players, things that you wouldn't expect to be uh, hiding underneath the bed, but somehow they got slipped in the cracks and people have forgotten about them maybe. Some some uh, beds, we find quite a bit of money underneath of them, so that's pretty interesting. Do you have anything else that you would like to talk about? When I was young, there were two things that I were interested in. I've always been interested in, like, firecrackers ever since I was a kid. My grandmother used to yell at me about playing with matches, so I think it's kind of funny. You know, she would tell me that that would never get me anywhere in life, and I grew up joining the Navy, and I have a job where I get to play with, you know, explosives. I get to actually help build bombs sometimes when we're off the sea. And uh, as far as the flying aspect, I've always been interested in planes, and before I joined the Navy, I was told by a Navy recruiter that the Navy would be my best chance to have the ability to fly. What I did was I signed up for something called the Air Crew Program, which gave me the opportunity to fly in the back of a helicopter. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy what it is that you're doing, and thank you very much for your service. Oh, thank you. Yes, I love my job very much. So you can see Here's what's going on at NC State. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. is the Earth Fair. The epic Earth-focused fair features dozens of exhibits, demonstrations, and ideas on how you can make the world a better place. This annual expo, which includes the Campus Farmers Market, will take place on the Brickyard and is part of NC State's Earth Month activities. Tomorrow evening, Dr. Neil Jock will give a speech titled Nuclear Weapons and Nuclear War in South Asia. What are the odds? Catch the talk at 6 p.m. in the D.H. Hill Auditorium. Tomorrow at 7 p.m. is a speech and panel discussion titled If Your Clothes Could Talk. Local textile entrepreneur Chuck Stewart will deliver a speech exposing the truth behind the clothes you are wearing. A panel discussion will follow the speech which takes place in the Campus Cinema in Witherspoon. Thursday through Sunday evenings, Arts NC State presents the Broadway Comedy Seminar in Thompson Hall. Visit ncsu.edu arts for times and more information. Thursday from 11.30 to 1.30 is the 2014 Global Engagement Exposition. The expo will feature achievements in international research, teaching and scholarship, extension, engagement, and economic development at NC State. The event will take place at the University Club on Hillsborough Street, and all are invited. RSVPs are encouraged. Visit oia.ncsu.edu for more information. This year's L.H. Thomas Lecture will be given on Thursday by John Mather. The Nobel Prize-winning astrophysicist will explain the history of the universe from the Big Bang to now and on to the future. All are invited to attend the lecture from 4 to 5.30 in room 2203 of Sass Hall. Also on Thursday is a presentation by Anthony Petro, assistant professor of modern Christianity at Boston University. His talk will examine how AIDS activists, church leaders, and journalists drew upon, often in conflicting ways, the rhetoric of religious freedom in the late 1980s. 
and suggests how this rhetoric has shaped cultural debates over sexual and religious freedom as much as through its flexibility as through its traditional deployment. Catch the talk at 4.30 in Winston Hall. The Gregg Museum will be hosting the Tea Ceremony on Thursday at 6pm. The Way of Tea is a transformative practice central to the spiritual life of Japan. See the Tea Ceremony performed by the Sarah P. Duke Gardens Tea Ceremony Group at 6pm in the Chancellor's Residence at 1903 Hillsborough Street. The NC State Women's Center will be hosting the annual Take Back the Night rally in March as part of the national Take Back the Night movement against sexual assault on Thursday evening at 7pm. This powerful event reaffirms NC State's commitment to ending interpersonal violence and will take place on the Stafford Lawn at Tally Student Union. As part of the Wolfpack Your Lunch series, Professor Christian Hulias will lead a session titled Big Data in an Open World. Drawing from his extensive experience with internet multimedia market space, metadata encoding, and entrepreneurship, he will show how the massive amounts of data generated daily are meaningful and useful to the masses, especially as we seek to educate the world population. The moderated discussion-style talk will take place on Friday from noon to 1 at the Players Retreat location near Centennial Campus. Friday night at 8pm is a feature of live music and NC State hip-hop talent in Witherspoon's Sankofa Room 126. Search NCSU Hip Hop Project for more information. The NCSU Longboarding Club will host its third annual Slide Jam at Lake Raleigh on Saturday. Longboarders, friends, family, and pets of all varieties, ages, and skill levels are welcome to participate in this day full of events, contests, product tosses, and raffles. The event will begin at 11am on Centennial Campus. Sunday afternoon, the Raleigh Civic Symphony will present American and Russian concert and film music, conducted by Robert Petters. The event will begin at 4pm in the Tally Ballroom. Visit ncsu.edu arts for more information. Next Monday, NCSU Dining presents Earth Day VIP. With a focus on local food, this is one of the biggest events of the year hosted by NCSU Dining. The meal will take place from 4.30 until closing at Fountain Dining Hall. Also next Monday is the Ladies in Red's Spring Concert. The Ladies a cappella group will perform their spring repertoire in the Tally Ballroom at 7pm. This weekend at the Campus Cinema, the films Saving Mr. Banks, The Book Thief, and Ride Along will be showing. Check uav.ncsu.edu for times. For more information on these events and more, visit ncsu.edu slash calendar. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Savage.